Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. Our main website, Clark.com. Our deals site, ClarkDeals.com. Coming up later, you're at the car rental counter. Many people only rent a car maybe once a year during the summer vacation. And they ask you all these questions about insurance, give you dire warnings if you don't buy from them. What should you know before you go? And what should you do at the counter? I'm going to tell you later. So there's something that first started coming available in various cities three years ago. It was where you, if you have a home and you're looking to sell it, you could get an offer from a big buyer backed by uh, big Wall Street money that would run a computer analysis, decide what they thought your home was worth, make an offer to you, and if you were interested, send an inspector to check the condition of your house, and then bam, they guarantee it, they buy your house, you're out. And you decide how quickly you want to get out, you're done. And a lot of people are so rattled by the whole process of putting a home for sale that I believe this was going to be a huge business. So has it in three years become a huge business? Completely depends where you live in the United States. This isn't going to work at all in the Northeast U.S. No way. Because houses are not uniform at all. Where it's working the best is in the western states where there are these big publicly traded builders that build thousands of homes and all in just a few different floor plans, maybe four different floor plans. But if you've spent much time in the Mountain West and parts of California, you know there's a lot of developments in the West where the homes look on the outside pretty much the same. You can look from a hillside and you just see a sweep of homes that all look pretty much um, not quite identical but close. So in a lot of metro areas in the West, this idea of just going online and getting an instant quote for your home has actually worked and in some markets is now taking as much as nearly 10% of the housing transactions when homes are put for sale. The way these work, and uh, Zillow is now doing so, and you know Zillow, the people that give you the, the, est, the zestimate of your home and you can shop for homes in an area, they in some cities are now offering to instantly buy your home. And then two companies that have had billions of dollars fed into them, OfferPad and uh, OpenDoor, which I've had many questions about both of them, they in certain cities have really established themselves and have significant market share because people have liked it. You're on average going to get a little less money than you'd get selling the traditional way. So you're paying essentially a little money to have the certainty that you're out 
You don't have to hope that somebody's going to come look at your home and want to buy it. You're not going to have to, the uncertainty of not knowing is your house going to sell in a week, a month, or a year. And so what I recommend, and these services and other competitors are now in dozens of communities in the United States, is that if you don't want to deal with the traditional way of selling your home, that you see who's available in your area, see what they offer you, and then you've got a rock-solid idea of the minimum you should expect for your home, right? And this is never going to take over the whole market anywhere. But in cities with large developments where there's a lot of commonality to the homes, the math of the computer can figure out what is a fair value for your home very accurately and this is an alternative. And we're speaking now with Sharon. Hi. Yes. Nice to have you here, Sharon. How can it's I be of service to you today? Hi, Clark. It's nice to talk to you. Well, great having you here. And you have a question about suddenly rising rates. What is running up on you? My homeowner's insurance. I've noticed the last several years it's gone up. Well, over the last three years, it's gone up $450. We haven't had any claims, and we haven't made any improvements, and I'm just curious as to what's going on. So give me what the base was three years ago and what it is with this renewal. How much were you paying before this $450 run-up accumulated? Uh, I didn't write down those numbers. I just wrote up that it went up $104, 119 and 238 this year. All right. Um, I'm going to give you a few possibilities. Ready? Okay. Okay. First thing, is there any chance that they boosted the amount that they had as the value for your home, which would translate almost directly into higher premiums? So they said, you know, home values have gone up. We want to raise the amount of value that we state for your home. I am sure they have. I think they have raised it every year. Okay, and that's something I'm not upset about because a huge number of homeowners are grossly underinsured. The whole purpose of having homeowners insurance is in the event there was a catastrophic loss that you're put back whole. Well, what's been happening is that people who've been in a home a good long while who have never adjusted how much coverage they have based on the value of their home going up over the years could have a major claim and be left out of pocket with massive exposure because they don't have enough insurance. Okay. So if the reason your premiums have gone up is because the coverage limits have steadily increased, that's not a bad thing because the think about the $450 premium increase, if it saves you from tens of thousands or maybe even past $100,000 in out-of-pocket exposure in the event of a major claim, it's worth it. Well, I, I do have to ask you this question then. The dwelling that they've shown, the dwelling limit of liability, I'm assuming because of the amount they've shown here, let me see if I can explain this, I kind of know what my home is worth, and my home is not worth as much as they're showing. Plus, I'm sitting on a piece of land, which is 
I assume they're including that in the value of the dwelling. Okay. Plus other structures, which I don't have. Well, you could, and the question I would have, how long have you been with this one homeowner's insurer? Oh, wow. Six years here. All right. Uh, previously, I mean, I've been with them for probably 20 years overall. All right. So there are a handful of insurers that are using what's known as loyalty index scoring. And if they know that a particular policyholder has shown great loyalty, then they're going to charge higher premiums to you because their algorithm says that you are not going to resist higher prices because your highest priority is loyalty to that insurer. And I believe that, and I get that. But here's a can I throw a little twist in here? Of course. Uh, I went on the website. I went to three of the recommended companies, made online requests for quotes. So far, my deal is the best deal out there based on the three that I got back. One of them was as much as 1500 a year higher than mine. And I used the same information that's showing on my insurance policy here. All right. So in that case... There's not really a reason for you to make a switch. However, no. you could talk to them about arguing why you feel you're overinsured. Okay. But, but I'm always comfortable in you paying a little too much premium to make sure that you can sleep well at night, knowing that you're not going to get in an argument at a time of a huge loss that they well, say, I oh. I agree a thousand percent with you there. So that one I'll let you make the call on. But it doesn't sound like there's a good reason to switch companies based on the scenario you outlaid, so laid out. So the only thing you really have to decide is how much do you want to argue with your insurer about how much right. they say it's going to take to rebuild your home. Be aware that even though your home may sell for less, the cost of rebuilding it per square foot is far above what the market value of a home is. Because the cost of construction and reconstruction, which is even higher, in the event that there is a huge loss. So I know I just sounded like I was spouting insurance jargon. But I believe so strongly that the big problem is the opposite of what you're stating. And that is people that are too exposed underinsured. Corey is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Corey. Hey, Clark, how are you today? I'm having a great day, thank you. Hope everything's wonderful with you. Absolutely. My question today is uh, I'm looking to travel to Las Vegas in the fall, and I was just curious when the best time to book a travel flight, and uh, is it better to bundle hotel with the flights or do it separate? Usually, even with Vegas, it's better to buy the air separate from the hotel but usually not always. But there's a key thing with Vegas that makes it different than every other city you can go to in the United States. Vegas, it's not so much when you buy your airline ticket, but precisely when you would travel, like in your case, in the fall. Because do you have any flexibility when in the fall you'd go to Vegas? really looking to go up for my wife's birthday, so I'm going to be there on her birthday weekend, which is the last weekend in uh, September. So I might get you to be a little less romantic and maybe go the week before, the week after, or something like that. Let me tell you 
and it could work fine for her birthday week. But here's what happens with Vegas, and I'm going to tell you how you figure this out. When there is a convention in town, a big convention at the Las Vegas Convention Center, the cost of everything in Vegas skyrockets. The hotels, the air flights, the shows you'd want to go to, everything goes through the roof. On the other hand, Vegas has peaks and valleys because once a big show is booked, one of the huge mega shows, it takes time to clean out the convention center, set up for the next show, so there will be a peak-peak time followed by a very off-peak time. So if you can plan your trip around when the town's quiet, everything you do is cheap. And it would also apply if you bought an air hotel combo package. Now, let me tell you how you figure out when those cheap weeks are. All right. Go to big convention hotel websites like Mandalay Bay, Bellagio. You can go to the Venetian, any of those websites. They put up a calendar, and you can see the price per night. And you'll be able to tell, looking at the month, you said September? Yes, sir. You can look at the prices in the month of September for some of those big convention center casino hotels. And when you see that dip in price, that's when you're going to get your best overall airfare, casino, hotel stay, and shows. Okay. So that's much more important than when you buy your ticket. Now, as far as getting a deal in the fall for air travel, the deals for fall will not appear typically in most years till after the 4th of July. That's when the first wave of sales occur on airfare for fall travel. Occasionally there will be a sale early summer on travel in the fall, but with much greater frequency after the 4th of July. It's time for Ask Clark, where you post a question for me at Clark.com, and then producer Joel asks it for you. That's right, Clark. Jessica wants to know, she says, my husband and I just finished the adoption of our twin grandchildren. Congratulations. Right, and we want to start an account for each of them, starting with 250 or $300 a month. What would you suggest? Wow. All right. So we don't know how old the twin grandchildren are, but I'm assuming they're, they're pretty young. I'm going to make that assumption. So what you can do is you can set up a custodial account for each of them, and you can put money into it like that. If you wait till you have a 1000 that would allow you to open an account, there are a lot of options you could open with a custodial account for these grandchildren, well, now your children, and fund it at will. And... There are a variety of index funds that I would like for that, like total or broad stock market index fund where they would own little pieces of thousands of companies all in one investment that has very favorable tax treatment. Now, the other angle is if college is something that is in your family's culture and tradition and these children would be likely to go to college, then doing 529 college savings plans would be great because you could own one for the benefit of each grandchild and have the money grow over the years. And because you're now, you've now adopted them and you are the parent, normally that means even potentially more favorable 
treatment for you in terms of how financial aid is considered at college. And so the beauty of the 529 plans is that the money grows tax-free and it's spent tax-free, where the custodial accounts I was referring to, you do have tax through the process. And if you do decide to do the 529 plans, I have a 529 plan guide at Clark.com, if college is likely to be in the future, for the idea of doing the custodial accounts. If you go to one of the low-cost houses I have listed on my investment guide, they all offer the custodial accounts and can take you through the process of setting those up. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. When you have a question for me, go to clark.com ask. So you rent cars. Most people rent cars very infrequently. I rent cars about 30, 35 times a year. I'm in the air and on the road a lot. So I got the whole drill with renting a car. And it's funny because whenever I'm dealing with a rental agent at a car rental company, they size me up pretty quickly that they're not going to be able to create fear in me that I'm going to face financial Armageddon if I don't buy all their overpriced semi kind of pretend insurance stuff that can take the cost of a vehicle through the roof. So I want you to know what I know and what I do so you can make the right decision for yourself when you do rent a car and you're not a sitting duck being intimidated at the counter to buy all this pseudo junk. Because the pseudo junk can easily add up to $50 a day on top of what you're paying for your rental. So first... Check with your own automobile insurer and see if you're covered for temporary use of a rental car. Almost all auto insurers do cover you, usually for 14, 15, or 30 days of a rental car. And you're covered just like you would be in your own vehicle. That's not enough. Because when you rent a car, if you do have a mishap in that car rental, And remember, it's regardless of fault. The car rental companies have invented all kinds of other junk fees, including one of the most questionable of all, loss of use for the days that the car is out of their fleet, including administrative fees and all that. So the way you protect yourself doubly is now there are many, many cards in the dozens of credit cards that offer car rental coverage that sits on top of what you have from your own automobile insurer. So the combination of the two doesn't eliminate the paperwork hassle and the phone calls you have to make and all that if you do have a mishap in a car rental. But it does eliminate pretty much roughly nearly 100% of the financial exposure of declining all the pseudo coverages from the car rental agency. Now, a lot of the car rental employees are under intense pressure and they're expected to sell the junk fees to at least one out of every three people who come to the counter. You can avoid all that with so many car rental companies now who have automated terminals you can go to to rent your car, to check out, you know, to 
check-in or whatever at the car rental instead of with a human and then all you have to do is say no and there's nobody that's going to be twisting your arm but you leave yourself at risk if you just assume you're covered that's why you want to make sure you have talked to your own insurer you know what coverages you have from them and that you know that you have a card that if you decline the coverages and you must decline the coverages in order for your credit card coverage to work for you that you have a card that does cover you when you do rent a car michael's with us on the clark howard show hello michael how you doing all right clark was wondering about uh peer-to-peer lending prosper and lending club or where you can either pick individual loans yourself to be the lender to, or you can just go into a portfolio where you adjust the level of risk you're willing to take, and then they make those loans for you, and you don't make the whole loan to anybody. Your loans are split up among many investors. I'm at the point where I can't follow your guidance, and uh, I can't make any contributions to any IRAs or Roth IRAs, so... I have to do something with that money, and I was looking at maybe that was an avenue. So this is not like a normal investment, and it's not like savings or anything like that. You are taking the role of a banker with the pluses and minuses of it. It's not a get-rich-quick thing, but the returns you'll get, even with charge-offs, should be far beyond what you could earn in a savings account or CD. But you do stand the risk, like any banker would, they're going to be people that go delinquent on you, and they're going to be people who are going to default. So I have skewed my portfolio towards lower risk of the loans I've made. I've only made roughly a third of them to people with lower credit profiles, and I've made slightly more than two-thirds to people who are high credit score, lower risk. Well, the other option would be to buy municipal bonds, but... With the uh, interest rates going up, the price... The value of the municipal bond holdings goes down. Right. Yeah, so... so, And and the returns I have on this ultimately will be taxable, but it's been something that's been a good experiment so far. It's going to make me some money, but it's not going to make me a ton of money. The downside risk seems very, very low unless you go into an ultra-high-risk lending profile. Haley's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Haley. Hi. How you um, doing? I'm doing well. I'm about to get ready for class. <laughs> oh, where do you go to school? I go to a little tribal college in Montana, uh, Chief Dolnice. Really? How much skiing mm-hmm. do you do? <laughs> I'm an awful skier. <laughs> oh. I, I keep wanting to go to big sky and ski there i've been there in the summer but i want to go there during ski season and hit the slopes there (laughs) it's pretty nice well how can i be of service to you haley i was just wondering uh i'm 19 i'm a college student and i was wondering how i could start saving for like retirement because i don't want to be one of those people that says i'll start tomorrow i'll start tomorrow i'll start tomorrow you know how much are you working while you're in school I actually have a job as a, um, a NASA intern, part of the STEM internship, and I have a job as a tutor at the college, actually. So you're uh, earning, so as long as you're earning income, you're able to open a Roth IRA? 
All right. And I'd love for you to do that. And okay. start putting money in. How much can you afford to save, let's say, this um, school year? Okay, so with the STEM internship and my tutoring, I'm also a commuter. I drive about 50 minutes to get to class. So I can save almost all of my income uh, because I'm actually living with a family member rent-free. So I can save everything except for gas money. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, a couple thousand dollars, I guess. <laughs> That's fantastic because what I was trying to get around to is that you can open one of the Roth IRAs with one of the companies that I love. Yeah. So, um, another question that I had uh, was how to build credit score because uh, right now I have little to none. <laughs> okay. Do you have any credit card at all? Uh, I recently just got one, but it was really hard because I don't have credit at all. Um, and I'm trying to limit how much I spend to a certain amount so that I can pay it off easily. That's perfect. And is it a Visa, MasterCard, Discover, or American Express? In other words, is it a major card? Yes. All right. It's a Discover card. All you need to do with that Discover card, just use it right, you know, charge little bits to it, pay that balance in full every month, pay it always on time. You're going to get the credit score you want, and then over the next year, you'll probably be at a point where you can get one more card, and two credit cards are what you need. That'll really get you to where you can build a really solid credit score. Yeah, and see, and that's kind of what I need, because next semester I graduate from this college, and it's just a two-year college, and I'm moving on to my four-year, so I have to get an apartment, which is going to be kind of hard without a credit score. Yeah, have you used the Discover program where you can monitor your credit score? Not yet. I just got this. uh, All right, well, do that with Discover. Also, the other thing I'd like you to do, set up a Credit Karma dashboard, creditkarma.com or creditsesame.com, either of those or both of them, you'll be able to monitor your credit and they'll guide you how to improve it over time too. Good for you and all the savings you're doing. Matt's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Matt. How you doing? Hey, Clark. I'm great. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. So, Matt, you're thinking of going solar. I'd love to go solar, and I just want to know what the best way to get into it is. I see a lot of plug-and-play type things available and grid versus battery. Yeah, good question. All right, so the the battery as part of backup for it is not for completely leaving the grid unless you live in, have a home, like somebody who has, let's say, a cabin in an extremely rural area, doing solar with battery backup is a fantastic idea. And it will first become something that will be very viable for someone building a home in a rural area where it costs so much to have the power lines run by the rural electrical provider. It will make sense for people to look at, depending on where they live in the country, whether a wind turbine on their own property would make sense or solar tied in with battery backup and not being on the grid at all. But for anybody who has access to the grid, the battery is only for backup purpose, not as replacement for being connected to the grid. Gotcha. Are you thinking of this at your principal home? Yeah, at my principal home. I've had the home about five years. So um, I'm, I'm a solar addict. I am so into it. 
we have what's called a solar farm at our house where it's not on the roof. It's placed on a hillside behind the house. And it's ridiculous. I go show people who are visiting, I go show them our solar farm. I'm so excited and proud of it. Did you Uh, put it in yourself or did you have to hire out? I can't do anything for myself. I am incapable. So, yeah, I hired a contractor who was a solar specialty firm to install the solar farm. Gotcha. And you just plugged back into the grid. Yeah, so it provides power to our house, and when we are generating more power than the house needs, the overrun goes to the power company. Today, if I was doing it over again, I would have used batteries. And ultimately, if there's an affordable option to add that to, to retrofit what I've got, I'll do that. Okay. Um, One thing I would not do is do not lease a solar system. Okay. Because you're creating an obligation, and even though they say they're going to save you money from what you've got now, when the time comes to sell your house, you've created a liability that the potential buyer has to qualify to assume that liability of that lease. Okay. If you buy a system, you get 30% federal tax credit back for the cost of buying it. Okay. And the projections, you'll be told how much money you'll save, how much power you'll generate. Take those with a grain of salt. Yes, certainly. And there's a guide online. I'm trying to remember if that's at energystar.gov or EPA. There's a guide online that the feds do that's very thorough that based on where you live, you can see how much or little solar will pay off at your address. Gotcha. And do I need to contact then my electric company? Yeah, they have to. Well, actually, the company that you would contract with, they know the local rules and regulations. They, If they're any good at all, they have a relationship with your local power provider for the interconnect. Okay. Gotcha. So Thank you have you. to lay a lot of money out up front, but the beauty is over time, you save so much on electricity and you also generate something that when you go to sell your home creates a perceived value for the buyer that the only study ever done showed that people pay $17,000 more for a house with solar than one equivalent without. And I don't know how valid those numbers are today, but there's obviously a market benefit to the person who buys your house and what they save month after month. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. 
Price and coverage match limited by state law. Trevor's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Trevor. Hey, Clark. How are you, sir? Great, thank you. You have a question for me about doing a Roth IRA for people who are being punished like you because you're too successful. Well, I don't know that I'm too successful, but uh, certainly blessed, I guess. Yeah, and it's kind of crazy, these accounts, and those, like the 529, I guess, that they were interested in possibly taxing, and uh, who the heck else knows what else is going to happen. But um, question for you. I am getting a bonus from work. It's fairly sizable. I'm maxing out my 401k. You know, I'll still have a lot left over, and I'm trying to figure out how I could do the IRA, but then roll it into the Roth. You can, and why there's a rule that limits Roths based on income and then gives you a way around it is one of the crazy things, along with many others, that point out our tax code's a mess. What you do instead is you put dollars into what's known as a non-deductible IRA. Okay. Now, a lot of the companies that you'll go to to open one, they won't know what that is. You might have to walk them through it. But there is a obscure version of an IRA known as a non-deductible, which is where when you're income ineligible like you are, you put your money into it. Then you're allowed to immediately move it from that into a Roth IRA without income limit. And that's called a non-deductible IRA. Right. And so it's called a backdoor Roth as you put money into the non-deductible establish the account, and then immediately move it into a Roth. Now, there's one roadblock. If you have any old IRAs sitting around, you are blocked from doing the transition from a non-deductible IRA into a Roth unless and until you also migrate any money in a traditional deductible IRA. Okay. Do you have any of those hanging out? So, I, you know, I don't. Oh, but, then for uh, you, this is easy, easy, easy. And only if you miraculously had a gain on the money in the time period between when you establish the non-deductible and you recharacterize as a <clears throat> Roth, would any money be subject to tax? And it would be only whatever earnings you had in the nanosecond between when you establish and when you reclassify, recharacterize. Okay. Now, I have an old Fidelity account that I don't use. With, with Fidelity, I mean, I'm not... Fidelity's not great. You could do Fidelity if you wanted to, but it will be a, it'll be a retirement account, which will be a separate account number, but you already have an account there, which makes it easier to do that stuff. Fidelity is a very sophisticated company. In their retirement center, they'll have specialists that will know how to carry you through the process of doing the non-deductible and then converting it into the Roth. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.